Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Hi, I'm Katie Isley, and this is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I started this podcast last year when I was caring for my dad. And one of the hardest things about it was knowing if my dad understood and was okay with decisions we were making on his behalf. Everything from dinner reservations to doctor's visits to managing his finances. I couldn't always tell what he thought. Sometimes he'd be very clear, other times quiet or irritated. And that's a painful part of dementia, not knowing how the person who has it experiences the world. That's why my ears pricked up when I learned about Cynthia Hewling Hummel. That's the Reverend Dr. Cynthia Hewling Hummel. I'm in the early stages of Alzheimer's. I started having problems back when I was working on my doctorate. Back in 2003, I was 49 years old. Cynthia is 68 now, the mother of a grown daughter and son and grandmother of three. Her career has taken her from the Peace Corps to corporate America to the church. I was riveted by her story a minister living with Alzheimer's, still well enough to discuss it. And I thought, since so many of us care for loved ones with dementia, who better to hear from than someone who has it? I asked Cynthia how she'd like me to describe her and her condition. I often will introduce myself as somebody living with early-stage Alzheimer's disease. If I'm speaking on a national platform, as I do in many um, instances, I talk about living with dementia because it's a broader term. It includes people um, who are living with other kinds of dementias. And so those are the words that I would prefer. Cynthia's disease started to become apparent to her almost two decades ago. And she told me what eventually tipped her off, that something was very wrong. I was forgetting my parishioners. I was forgetting meetings. I was having trouble recognizing people and and remembering what they told me. And that's very problematic for a pastor because people like to be remembered by their pastors. They confide in a lot of ways, you know, and I looked for many answers. I visited many doctors, had many tests, and, you know, they thought it might be menopause because of my age, thought it could be something related to thyroid. And it wasn't that the doctors weren't trying. They certainly were. But it took me eight years before I got a diagnosis. But my diagnosis back in 2011 was amnestic, mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. Now, I should also say that my mother died with Alzheimer's disease. Her only brother died with Alzheimer's disease. My maternal grandmother had some sort of um, dementia. Back then, we used to call it senility. We don't use that word anymore. Um, But back then, that's how we referred to it, that she was senile. And so it wasn't a huge surprise that I would have a diagnosis of early stage Alzheimer's, if you will, but it was a sadness. And um, I made the decision at that time to um, leave full-time ministry because I wasn't able to do the things that I needed to do to be an effective pastor. And when you made that decision, were you able to keep a part-time participation in your parish? Well, the first thing is I had to move out of the manse because I was living in in the church's housing. So imagine getting a diagnosis, wrestling with what to do next. And when we looked at my test results, and I was at the very low end of the bell-shaped curve, and when I talked to my parish council about this, 
um, one of the gentlemen said, well, that explains everything. Um, and I thought I'd been faking my way and kind of covering up for my mistakes. I would write everything down. When you leave the parish, you kind of leave that church behind because the experiences that they want you to bond with the next pastor, they want the parishioners to connect with their, their newest pastor. So when I left, I really struggled at what I was going to be doing next. And I saw an ad for a class, eight-week class with the Alzheimer's Association, understanding Alzheimer's. And I thought, since I've got Alzheimer's, I better try and understand it. And I drove to that class and I sat in the parking lot and I cried. It just felt so unfair. You know, it just felt like the rug had been pulled out. I was just so young and this, this was not how my life was supposed to go. And at the end of the class, I still had Alzheimer's, you know, and um, I was the only person by myself there. Everybody else came as, as a couple. Uh, a care partner and, and a person with a, a diagnosis. So it was tough. But afterwards, I decided I would reach out and, and do what I could to volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association and then got involved in many um, different projects on the national level. And, and it's truly turned into a ministry and a blessing. May I then ask, is there disability coverage for something like this when you have to leave your job because you have a cognitive, serious cognitive disability? I was able to get disability, um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I had a team of people through the church, and it was through the National Presbyterian Church that helped me um, navigate that process. In many jobs, it's very difficult to navigate that. It's hard enough under normal circumstances. So that was a huge blessing in my life, Um, but it's not an easy thing to to apply for and to go through. There's lots of hoops, um, lots of things that has to be done, that have to be done. May I ask um, what it feels like day to day? (laughs) Yeah, every day is so different. I mean, there are days where I am on the money and I know what I'm doing. There are other days where I spend the whole day looking for the keys that are hanging around my neck. There are days where I can come up with the words. There are days where I feel like I'm walking around in a fog. It is the craziest thing because I can't predict. But I try to have a regular routine. Like this morning, I got up and I went swimming I try to swim three times a week at the Y because what's good for the heart is good for the brain. I try to eat well. I try to get social, get out and do social activities. And I'm preaching again. Um, I'm reusing those old sermons, (laughs) fluffing them up a little bit um, and um, reusing it. And when my old church, my first church um, reached out to me during the pandemic and they said, could you learn how to to preach virtually? Um, Because we, we need somebody. And I thought, well, I'll try if you'll be patient with me. And so that's been working out pretty well. Well, good morning, everybody. It's me, Pastor Cynthia, coming to you from the First Presbyterian Church. Today we are celebrating Mr. Rogers Sunday. We'll be talking about neighborhoods and neighbors this morning. I have just a and it's a wonderful way for me to stay connected and involved. And it gives me a purpose. And Jesus wanted to be clear to his listeners then and to us that our neighborhood is a lot bigger than the block that we live on. Our neighbors are people who have different religious beliefs. They are people who speak different languages, who have different traditions, and they come from other cultures. In thinking about caregiving for what people are living with, what kind of care or assistance do you need or do you, are you preparing for? And, and that's first. And then how do you, 
assemble the team to help you? Right now I'm able to live alone, but I've set up um, a network, what I call my circles of support. And I've invited people who I love and who love me to be part of that circle of support so that they can reflect back to me their observations um, and changes that they might see in my everyday in a life, because I'm mindful that I may not be able to see those myself. And I set up a lot of different um, safety procedures and reminders. Uh, For example, if I have a doctor's appointment, I ask for three reminders, um, one the week before, one the day before, and one the morning of, because I need that extra boost. I've come to be a lot more open to asking for help. In the past, I was the helper who went out and helped other people and did things. And it it was a little bit humbling. And it took me a while to, to get to the point where, you know, I, I had to ask for help for certain things. I'm still able to pay my bills. And I think living alone, in some ways, is a huge blessing, because I have to keep moving, I have to keep doing things. And I think the more that I do, the better I am at remembering to do those things. And I have all kinds of checklists and signs by the door and remember to do this and remember to do that. Sometimes the old fashioned technique of putting a sign on the floor. But I also know that when the time comes and I'm not able to take care of myself, that my preference is to move to a a care facility that I've had a discussion with my family about. So, you know, that's not set in stone, but they do know my preferences and my end of life wishes as well which is a lot more prepared than most families at all. I mean, in some ways that knowing this condition exists and knowing that you have to do some planning, you've already put this in place. Many families don't even have a will, much less an end of life care or a before end of life care plan. Yeah, I've known that, yeah. I didn't Uh, want to burden my family in that way. We're gonna take a quick break and in a minute, Cynthia looks back on her mother's experience with Alzheimer's. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. If you're enjoying the show, here's another podcast you'll like, What the Health? I'm Julie Rovner, host of the show and chief Washington correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Every week, top reporters from outlets including the New York Times, Politico, and CNN join me to discuss the latest health and health policy news. Confused by all the health policy jargon? We'll break it down in terms that are easy to understand. KHN's What the Health. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's 24-7. I'm Kitty Isley, continuing my conversation with the Reverend Cynthia Hewling Hummel. Reverend Hummel is in the early stages of Alzheimer's. She told me about watching her mother suffer the same illness and becoming part of her care team. I was a remote caregiver in that I was living in upstate New York. My parents were living in New Jersey and my sisters, uh, I have four sisters who live in that area. So um, they were doing the brunt of the work and I was providing prayer support and, and that kind of support from afar. I just remember how sad I felt when I visited my mom one time and, and she didn't remember my name. And to me, that's always stayed with me because as I think ahead in my own journey, um, I've tried to prepare my kids for that time when I won't remember their names or maybe even who they are. But my hope is that I'll still remember that I love them and that they'll love me um, so that the, the love remembers. As you can probably tell by now, Cynthia is not someone who sits back and waits for things to happen. 
She advocates for better Alzheimer's and dementia care, and she's putting her disease at the service of science, offering herself to researchers. Soon after her diagnosis, Cynthia enrolled in a national clinical study of Alzheimer's. Every year, she undergoes a battery of physical and cognitive tests. It might include a lumbar puncture, MRIs, um, tau PET scans, amyloid PET scans, blood work. I'm always encouraging people to consider participating in research. That's the only way we're going to get to treatments and a cure is if people step up. And it's my, my way of honoring my mom, who, as I said, died of Alzheimer's. And it's another way I can fight the disease with my body. And my brain is going to the University of Rochester upon my death. My kids know that before I'm um, cremated. I said, you gotta, gotta make sure my brain gets there. Here's the card that you need to call. So um, hopefully um, by studying my brain and the brains of others um, through the testing that we're able to make advances and we're seeing advances. I find Cynthia enormously courageous. There's a lot of sadness, as she said, in dealing with this disease. You heard earlier that Cynthia took up preaching again during the pandemic. When I spoke with her right before Christmas, I asked her how she talks with her congregation about grief. My goodness. Well, it comes up all the time because people are grieving all kinds of situations. Um, one of the things I'm doing this weekend is a blue Christmas service, and it's all about grief. Um, grief in the broadest sense. It could be grief from getting a diagnosis to grief from losing a loved one or a job or things changing. So good to see you all tonight. I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, I just want Christmas to be over. I can't be around people who are so gosh darn cheerful all the time, especially when I'm feeling so blue. Or maybe... I'm mindful of the grief of this journey, and it, and it ebbs and flows. When my mother used to buy us all Christmas presents, and the first Christmas, she didn't do that. And it was just such a sadness for me as her daughter. And I want you to know it's okay to be sad. It's good to be together, even though we aren't physically together, we're physically apart. But we can weep, we can rage without embarrassment tonight. We can pray together and um, especially to hear words of comfort from scripture that remind us, that remind me, that remind you, that remind all of us that even in our darkest nights, that we're not alone, that God is with us. And I was thinking about how um, God uses angels to um, deliver messages to us. And sometimes those angels um, are people in street clothes and they're the people who um, who knock on our door and, and because they they've done something, they want to uh, let us know that they brought our trash can around the back. I think we have to celebrate the, um, the blessings in every life, to give thanks for them, because it, it's so easy to get into a cycle of kind of a downward spiral and to, to look for ways that we can ourselves help others, because when we help others, we help ourselves. And I think people with dementia need to, to be encouraged um, to participate in these activities because they're life-giving. Reverend Dr. Cynthia Hewling Hummel of Owego, New York. And a postscript from Cynthia. Shortly after we spoke, she was invited to live in a community of retired Presbyterian pastors. She's got her own two bedroom house and says she's busy settling in and getting to know her neighbors. 
This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving, and we'd like to hear about your experience if you're taking care of someone in your family. Hi, everyone. My name is Katie. I'm a nurse and caregiver to my stepfather with Parkinson's dementia and my mother who is progressing from cognitive impairment to dementia. One thing I've noticed that is hardly discussed is that besides the complexity of caring for your parents with dementia, you have to help navigate them through the healthcare system. Thankfully, I'm a nurse and have a leg up here, but I can't imagine what this is like for others. Without close monitoring, your loved one can easily be overlooked or brushed off. I've dealt with missed diagnoses, medication errors, and potential starvation and dehydration. Education on how to navigate this tricky system needs to be incorporated into caregiver support groups. Thanks for listening to my experience and opinions. We all need to be heard. You can send us a short voice memo or an email about what you're dealing with to 247 at tpr.org. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian and Rekha Murthy. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio. Stories like those shared in this podcast inspire the work being done at the Biggs Institute of the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Did you know you can donate your brain to help support future dementia research? Through our brain donation program, researchers are learning more about how biological and environmental factors influence a person's health. With the gift of one brain, researchers gain insight for hundreds of research studies, bringing hope to the more than 55 million people worldwide touched by dementia. Learn how you can be a part of these discoveries at uthealthdementia.org.